Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast, the official podcast of Unstoppable Domains. Join us each week to hear from leading experts in the exciting new fields of blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the decentralized web, where we talk about the future of the internet and what that means for humans like us. Not only will this podcast help you sound super smart around your friends, but you'll also learn how you can become a pioneer in this space and help lead the charge toward a more decentralized web. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm here today with my co-host, Matthew Gold, co-founder and CEO of Unstoppable Domains, and our guest, David Greider. He's the Director of Digital Asset Strategy at Fundstrat Global Advisors. Welcome, David. Thanks for being here. Thanks a lot. Very happy to be on. Awesome. So to start off, why don't you just take us back to when you first got into crypto? How did you get into crypto in the first place? You know, I heard about it from a friend at first. I had a friend... Uh, in college, mining in his dorm room back in 2013. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but but kind of silly. And then, um, you know, I thought it was kind of speculative and stuff back then. And, you know, I kind of put it on the shelf for a little while. But then in 2015, Chamath Palihapitiya, who you you know, many have probably heard of, who was the um, founder of Social Capital and, and the first uh, COO of Facebook. You know, I think he's a smart guy. And I was listening to him. You know, he was talking about Bitcoin then. And and I spent quite a bit of time, you know, I was like, okay, if this guy really um, is into it, you know, he believes that he's smart. There's got to be something here. So I actually have him to thank for that. So I spent a bit of time researching, studying, and took some of the classes online and kind of figured it out and, and been in ever since. Got it. So 2013, that was still pretty early on. What sorts of resources were out there for you to learn more about the space? You know, that I think that's it's the crazy thing about the early, early crypto years versus now, right? Like I remember I had to go back and I was reading on Reddit forums and I'm reading on Bitcoin talk forums and you can't find a good source of ground truth, right? Like it's not like back then, right? You couldn't find a good information sources, right? It's not like, you know, a company, you go to the SEC website and you can find, you know, audited filings on how, how Bitcoin works or any of these other coins, right? You're, it's, it's all, can you get in the right chats? Can you find the right people to talk to? Can you sift through these old forums. But nowadays, I think it's so much better, right? In twenty by twenty fifteen and stuff, there's at least some courses by Princeton and stuff. And that was that was really helpful. That was one of the first things I really took that was really helpful for understanding cryptography, how how the, the technical fundamentals work and really how how, how the technology works at, at the core, you know. For sure. And so for the average person who's listening in and maybe is very new to the space, do you have any chat rooms or Twitter personalities or blogs that are sort of your go-tos for learning more about the space? You know, I'm kind of in a, a unique position, which is that I've, I'm kind of on the um, professional, like I have an inside circle of folks who are kind of, you know, in the industry. And I'm in a number of group chats these days, which is where I just kind of get most of my information from. You know, what I would do if I was someone who wasn't kind of in these like uh, private group chats or whatever. I mean, I think Twitter is actually a great, a great source because, you know, you can find good lists of people out there. And it's like the internet, right? Information is really just pretty democratized these days. You know, I think that's a great, great place. Some of the smart VCs, I think you should start, you should read some of their forums, read some of their blogs. I read a ton of the Andreessen stuff, A16Z, and I read it, you know, like the YouTube videos that they put out. I think it's really thoughtful because it, it connects not just crypto, right, which some folks can really be hyper-focused on who are in the industry, but connects it with 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 really the traditional tech world 
And I think that's, that's pretty important. For you personally, I love asking this question because everybody sort of has their own explanation of it from where they come to this space. And so from from your view, how would you explain crypto and blockchain to a beginner in the space in just a couple of sentences? Blockchain is about fundamentally, and crypto is really about fundamentally changing the way that humans interact and are kind of like governed or organize themselves, right? And we do this in many different ways, right? It's with, you know, in the way that we structure money and, and wealth and how we how we distribute that. And, and then some of these other networks, right, that are more like DAOs, right? How we effectively bring human coordination together, right? So I think that that's kind of the core of what the technology does. You know, that's why it comes back to people saying it replaces trust. And it's it's a new way to to have this distributed trust over the internet and, and create a new, you know, global internet economies. What do you think are the current major challenges to widespread adoption or I guess like the next leap in adoption for cryptocurrency? Or do you think there are any at all? Do you think it's already happening and, you know, it's inevitable this next uh, push up here? You know, at Fundstrat, we do investment research for many clients and we'll talk about this in a bit, but we put out a 2021 outlook and the, and the cover title of the 2021 outlook was actually that I, I put out was going mainstream. And that was the title that I put out an, about a month ago. Right now, we're at the point where we are kind of going mainstream in terms of the adoption. I think we're in, if, if I had to compare it to the internet era, it seems to me like this is now about like 1998, 99, 2000, right? And if we think about that in kind of many terms, right? Users, kind of UX, UI, uh, use cases. I think it's also, again, like back to that era of the early internet where things were still kind of clunky and unusable and browsers weren't that great. And, you know, maybe the connections were slow and stuff. I think there's still a lot of stuff getting figured out, right? And what are those things that I think are still getting kind of figured out, right? Like I was talking to um, someone at a major news network the other day, and they're doing a um, an article on this. And, you know, some of the things I mentioned, right, which were, you know, at least for the payment side, not a lot of use in payments, like 8% according to um, one of the uh, chain analysis reports is for merchant services, right? It's pretty small relative to 85% being between exchanges. And, you know, I think it's the volatility. I think it's, you know, some of the acceptance of um, merchants and e-commerce and the currency, right? I, I think it's changing. I think it's coming with Visa and I think it's coming with PayPal. And I think it's coming with, with, with all these merchant services. Um, it's changing. But I think I think that's true for the payments. I think the fees are, you know, are, are, are things to figure out with the scaling. Some of the UX has been improving greatly, but especially in DeFi, I think there still needs to be some work to be done. And I think taxes is an interesting one that people need to figure out with the software just for keeping track of using, paying, investing in. It's very difficult. And and, and as this stuff goes mainstream, at least in the current U.S. tax system, it's going to be a nightmare for some folks until it gets really figured out. There's a lot to unpack there, a lot to dive into. We can dig into the 2021 outlook a little more later. Why don't you back up and just tell people for listeners who aren't familiar with what Fundstrat is, tell people what Fundstrat is as a company. What does it do? Who does it serve? I'm the uh, lead digital asset strategist at Fundstrat. Uh, Fundstrat is uh, was originally a, a macro um, equity research firm founded by Tom Lee. Tom Lee is on CNBC all the time. Um, he's actually a commentator on there now. Uh, but he was before that the chief equity strategist at JP Morgan. So, uh, you know, for the entire bank, um, JP Morgan Chase, he set equity kind of investment strategy for, for institutional clients across the globe, which is a pretty, pretty important role. And he found a fund strategy in 2014, you know, got into crypto in 2017. Um, I joined in um, 2020 and 
have been leading the uh, digital asset research business that we have. And that really consists of three parts. We think of ourselves really as the bridge between Wall Street and crypto. Uh, we're probably the only, at this point, at least, that, that might change soon, but the only reputable Wall Street sell-side firm that does investment research on, you know, not just crypto companies, but crypto projects, native crypto assets. You won't get that, you know, from, from any of the major banks at this point. Um, may change very soon, but three parts to our business are we have institutional clients, traditional funds, you know, all the big mutual funds, um, hedge funds, you know, family offices uh, on the street uh, covers, you know, 70% of uh, managed equity assets globally. Because, you know, we have a lot of those relationships from before. We have, you know, obviously some crypto funds as well, as well as uh, a retail client base. And we also have a, a consulting business where we uh, work with projects, some interesting projects like we were talking about before on the show. Zillica is one um, who we work with, who I know did a, uh, you guys have done the Unstoppable Domains auction on their network, right? So that's how we know about you guys is another reason. So, and many other projects as well, right? So that's kind of the core of our business, those three buckets right there. Got it. And so are most of your clients across all of those spaces pretty crypto savvy people right now? And when you think in the long term, who are the people you're trying to serve? Is it everybody in retail, everybody in, in all of those spaces or, you know, talk more about that? Yeah, again, I think we're the bridge between um, Wall Street and crypto. I think people mostly come to us to get educated at kind of the base higher level. You know, I think there's really a spectrum of there's people on one end that are very crypto Right. And they're very deep into the very deep, deep, deep. Like, here's how the super niche part of, you know, these small emerging like Dow networks or something will work. Right. And, and then there's like, you know, there's very much Wall Street, like, you know, like a oh, blockchain and not Bitcoin and like tech and fintech. And we don't get this stuff. And then we kind of sit in the middle here and we try to really be the bridge of helping people step back. Right. And, and beyond like, you know, just, you know, we understand these things, right? But beyond like the, the niche technical things, right? The technical consensus details and all these things. And we, we understand them, of course, but we help them understand what's the bigger picture of how the tech connects across the trend from the current paradigm, right? Like thinking about how cloud computing, right, is going to decentralize cloud computing with, with Ethereum. It's effectively a decentralized cloud network to that being kind of the future, right? More so than... Um, and people understanding the bigger picture and understanding how the stuff really works kind of across the, the real world to the crypto world paradigm, you know. From talking to all of the clients that you have, how long do you think it'll be before there's almost not a need for this type of education anymore because everybody just knows about it? Oh, we're so far off. We're so far off. I still have calls with, you know, teams of, you know, six to eight portfolio managers, more um, traditional money managers, we're still talking about some things that are, you know, core to like, how does Bitcoin supply work? How does mining work? How does the, you know, the new issuance work? You know, what stops from being um, new coins and how these things? So, I mean, I'm not saying that's everybody, right? But, you know, 2021 uh, was really the year where I think Wall Street kind of had like a enlarged like, a, oh, we really need to figure this out moment. You know, I think a lot of people thought this was going to go away, you know, after 2017 and said, okay, 2018, 2019, you know, okay, we told you, All right? And then when it came back, kind of like, okay, well, we're behind the curve. And, and you guys, having been in crypto for a very long time, will know there's, 
there's a huge learning curve. It takes a very long time, right? Even even us who've been in it forever, I, there's still so many things to to understand and it's all moving so fast. You know, imagine you're trying to start day one today and that's most people, but they realize the people at least that I talk to, right, who are newer, right, um, they realize that this is going to impact their portfolio. You know, whether it's from the payments angle, right, whether it's from the fintech angle, from the internet angle, eventually, right? If it's not today, but it's just like the internet impacted newspapers eventually and, um, you know, TV eventually and everything. I think they realize that. But, you know, that's that's one class, right? That's that's one class of our clients. We also have another class of people who have been in crypto for a while and are some very smart crypto funds, right, and crypto earlier traditional investors and smart crypto retail who ask good questions sometimes too. So it's a mix, right? The knowledge is not disseminated just yet. Give me your prediction. In 10 years, where do you see the environment being? Do you see most people understanding this stuff or describe your client, what your clientele is going to look like and what their knowledge base is going to be in 10 years if you had to give your prediction? Oh, I, th- I think by, in 10 years, yeah, people will, will definitely be on board, right? Like if you think about going from, you know, um, the 2000s in the internet era to 2010, right? I think in, in that 10 years time, I think people are now learning. They're now, they're now educating. There's a lot more resources available. There's people like me available that can call. You know, there's a lot more research out there from banks. It's, there's a lot of great shows like you guys have that help educate people. You know, I definitely think that in 10 years, it'll be as you, you know, ubiquitous as the internet was in 2010. That's, that's something I think is just, just naturally going to evolve. Well, I want to get into a couple of things that you've highlighted in your recent report that you actually came out with uh, earlier this year and some of the things that I thought were really interesting. Uh, I would just say generally, it looks like uh, Fundstrat is very bullish on the space, on your uh, price predictions for ETH, for example, and BTC, among the others, and those keep going up. I know you don't have time to walk us through your entire thought process for the space, but one thing I want to call out is Fundstrat seems to be particularly bullish about Ethereum, I would say, at least in one of these places, uh, and relative to some of the other uh, assets out there. And you had some pretty interesting comparisons between cloud computing and Ethereum. And would you be willing to walk us through what's your bull case on these smart contract, you know, compute platforms? uh, And then how do you guys see that space evolving? You know, I mean, we're bullish on crypto as a whole, right? You know, we've had a, you know, bullish price target. Bitcoin we put out, you know, after the market fell off and and we put, you know, we've been raising that. So, you know, our price target, just to give people a high level view first, uh, before I dive into Ethereum, right? Our price target on Bitcoin, we've been continuing to raise that and it's currently 100,000. Our target on Ethereum is, um, you know, 10.5,000. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, I kind of see that eating the cloud. Um, and we think that also in 2021, if, if those two kind of, you know, hit, uh, the rest of the market will probably follow given the size and dominance. And I think, it wouldn't be crazy to see um, the entire crypto market, inclusive of the alts and Ethereum and Bitcoin, hit you know roughly five trillion, which would be about it was about a trillion when we put that out. We're about one point five now, so we're making good progress, I guess, being uh, about a month from that date. To Ethereum, I think the thing that people kind of miss or maybe overlook when they think about cryptocurrency is that I think it's also you know it's important to think about crypto as a new computing platform, and it's a new kind of cloud network in my view, or at least the next leg of it. You know, if you think about uh, what's happened in computing, right? You've gone from from mainframes uh, centralized to PCs decentralized to cloud centralized. Maybe this shift is happening. We think to blockchain cloud, right? Um, decentralized computing, and you know what we're seeing underway is you can run uh, your computer, you can run the Ethereum no- node in the network, you can validate things, you can you can operate, um, you can smart contracts, right? And and I we look at that almost like it's like a decentralized cloud network. 
you know, and that could be the next wave of cloud computing, right? And these shifts have happened in the past before, right? And you've seen, um, you know, value shift from, from one generation to the next. Uh, and you can see that in some of the public companies and some of the public valuations. And, and I think we're seeing that underway here today when you think about kind of the rise of, of cloud, right? Cloud, cloud right now is like, you know, roughly a $2 trillion market cap. You know, blockchain computing, right? If you strip out like Bitcoin or something and you just think about coming to the platforms, you know, you're probably, you know, maybe you're, you know, three, three, four hundred billion, right? And that's, that's kind of gaining steam, right? When you think about Ethereum only launching in 20, 2015, really with their 50 million or whatever it was, ICO. And so I think we're seeing a value shift already. And I think you're also seeing just now in 2021 um, and, and 2020, right? But some real material revenue coming to the Ethereum network, which is almost material in terms of like the actual cloud market. So um, off the top of my head, I think Ethereum did about, or at least there's about a billion of, of total fee revenue, right? Not, not mining rewards, fee revenue. I think it was um, 600 million last year Ethereum did, something, something to that number. And right now, I mean, they're probably on pace 2021 to do, you know, maybe 8 billion, and that growth number is actually in line with the five-year growth number, right? They've been growing from a few hundred thousand to, um, you know, up to a few million. I mean, it's been growing at like 1,500% a year, the, the fee revenue. And, you know, so I say, look, if, if, if crypto networks like Ethereum, and especially if they switch to proof of stake, are kind of like decentralized companies, you know, we call them decentralizedly governed networks, right? New form of technology company we just organize those networks as we talk about some of our research um and you switch to proof of stake and that changes the economics to being kind of like a company and i can talk about that in a bit but and you look at the the revenue that they're they're throwing off and what that can mean for you know the reduction in supply of tokens at eth2 right and you put a, a, cl a cloud multiple on that growth adjusted that's how we kind of got to our number i personally love seeing the comp between crypto companies and cloud companies, the crypto network, sorry, and, and uh, cloud companies. And particularly, I think it's a really good comparison because the cloud companies are actually the really big web two companies. Like they're the people who made trillions of dollars from, I would say somewhere around 2005 when Salesforce really started advertising the cloud all the way till today, 15 years, they had a huge run absolutely massive market that these guys created. And inside the crypto space, we always refer to things as uh, Web3 when we talk about it. And, and so there are a couple of other things you said that I wanted to dig into a little bit more that are interesting to me. So cloud companies are very Web2. Uh, what do you think about the future of Web3? And then another term you use uh, is edge blockchains. I'm kind of interested just to hear where do you think Web3 is going? How is that going to interact? And what did you mean by um, edge blockchains? there's kind of been these different waves of the web, right? And there's obviously a lot of different ways that people define it, you know, kind of what it is. But if we kind of think about what, at least my understanding of what folks in crypto are trying to do with what they call Web3 um, versus the Web2 paradigm is, it seems like, you know, most folks define it as kind of replacing some of these traditional application layer companies that have been built on top of the internet, providing, you know, applications that, um, you know, whether it's the fangs of the world and everything that they're doing and, and replacing those are protocols, uh, crypto network protocols to be specific, right? And letting these protocols operate as open source, openly governed, um, collective internet community owned organizations, right? And as I said, you know, blockchains in the beginning are really core cool about, um, you know, changing the dynamics of how humans coordinate, 
right? And, and this is new organizational structure, these networks, right? Going from companies to platforms to networks, I think is the trend, right, that you're seeing with these Web3. And I think that that's really, you know, in my view about changing everything um, from the way we interact with the internet, from the way that we own the platforms and the applications themselves and to make them community owned and govern networks as opposed to, um, you know, company control and closed networks that are, you know, you can get platform dethroned, you can get censored, you can get all these different things to uh, the way that uh, we interact with uh, money and finance and e-commerce and the internet, right? Natively embedding, you know, fintech, which is DeFi and, and crypto payments, right? Into the internet with these networks and value um, to the way that our data is used, to the way that we control it with things like ZK Snarks and the way we control our privacy, the way we permission our data, we carry our data across platforms, right? Don't keep them all with one, um, you know, web two cloud company, Back to the final one, which you're talking about, which was the the edge computing. So the way, so, so to the way that the infrastructure that actually supports the network operates, right? Because right now, you know, you have AWS, right? You have Google Cloud, right? Uh, you have uh, Tencent, right? They, you know, these guys, you know, are the ones that really have the data centers, right? That control the web. And if if you you know, even if you decentralize everything else around it. Like with, um, you know, I know this is a controversial take, but it could be for something else, right? One of those, uh, the parlor thing with the Trump on that one political site, they got kicked off of AWS, right? You know, if you have decentralized infrastructure, right? And I'm not saying I support or don't support that, right? But I'm just saying if it's another thing, right? If, if, if these cloud platforms can control what's, what's hosted on the servers, right? You know, you kind of, you kind of have monopolies and other things that, that, that are potentially imperfect for society. And, it's just about freedom of the web, right? If you put it on these decentralized hosted networks, right, and you can have the computers across the globe, it's kind of a new paradigm for how how the internet is built, how you know we in society interact digitally globally. I agree, and I like to tell people that it's actually really good for them to have more control over their data online. You're already seeing this pushback in the EU with GDPR around user consent for accessing this data and permissioning it in. And if you just dig deep into that and you try to see like, oh, what's the ultimate solution to preventing all these companies from being hacked and having user data stolen and having it misappropriated or used incorrectly, the best way to do that is to actually make it so that the users have full control over permissioning who can see their data. Just like we're getting with finance right now, like cryptocurrency allows you to have 100% custody and control over your uh, your finance if you want to, if, if you want to take it all that way. And sure, you can use custody products and you're still going to be trusting some people. Uh, but I really like that migration from, and, and I do think it's just as big. Like I think the Web3 companies and crypto networks are going to be, you know, 10 times, you know, maybe not 10 times, but definitely bigger than these cloud companies that you alluded to. Uh, and with blockchains, I just think it's interesting because if you look at the fundamentals, there are so many different ways to win, right? There's transaction volume going up on these blockchain networks. There is uh, DeFi that's a huge market for them. There's a decentralized web. There's all these NFTs that are happening. And there's also just user growth is another way to value it. So I want to dig in on that, actually. Uh, How do you guys at Fundstrat, how do you guys come up with user numbers? I mean, it seems like, you know, if I'm looking around on the blockchain, it seems like there may be several hundred thousand and maybe a million people interacting with a blockchain on like a monthly basis or something. But to me, it seems like the vast majority of people, like 100 million of them, are sitting on these centralized exchanges. Do you see that moving in the future? And then what do you count as a user, I guess, when you guys are looking at it from a fundamental bottoms up where the market's going type of type of method? 
And I'll actually just add one more point to, to something you said in the beginning, just before I switched to the user stuff, which you mentioned about GDPR and all of these things. I think that the reason that the Web3 crypto networks could actually take share and it could happen quicker than people think is these guys are under attack. Many of these traditional big tech, I mean, you saw them on Capitol Hill, they're getting broken apart politically across the globe. And I think that that's one reason that these these new community governed models could take share soon. So to your question on users, right, I think that's obviously the key, right? Because as you know, actually, there's a lot of the value of the internet accrued. It really followed user growth. Like as users, internet users grew, um, internet value followed. And that's something we pointed out in some of our other research. And there's a lot of ways to measure it, right, when it comes to crypto. Um, you know, the numbers that we take, you know, at least in our report, we think Cambridge had a good study. And, and I think it's mostly based on centralized exchanges. You know, they did interviews with most of the exchanges. And they, they found, um, I believe it was 101 million crypto users. Right, unique crypto users across these exchanges, um, and that was as of um, you know Q3 2020. Right, so given the bull market, we've probably seen quite a bit of growth even there. We're forecasting, at least my numbers forecasting is um, I think around 200,000 by um, by year in 2021. So I think we could double, and that would be consistent with kind of the growth of the internet over time and kind of some of the growth we've seen in prior bull market cycles. But again, there's there's many ways to count a user, right? There's there's the trader, there's someone who's active on chain as an active address. You know, users nowadays could be active smart contracts, right? Those could be, um, you know, like the new business users, right? New business users, right? That's a merchant customer in, in the new crypto world. We're seeing a lot of user growth. I think it's very exciting. I think that's going to be key to, uh, you know, the innovation. Switching gears here a little bit, David, you mentioned the bull market and crypto cycles and things like that. I'm just wondering, what are some reasons why, you know, Bitcoin prices go up and go down? And, you know, for people that maybe get all of their education from Twitter, just see a lot of people freaking out every time it dips a little bit or goes up a little bit. Like what causes these dips and booms and what's like the big picture important thing for people to know? You know, it took me a while to understand this, but... I think it's actually a lot more the macro than people understand. Like the global macro financial system, like everything that's happening in the traditional markets, and I could talk about some of the details of how it all fits together in a minute, that stuff plays a really heavy influence on, on crypto prices. And I know everyone likes to say that you know crypto is uncorrelated, and it is, right? From a mathematical perspective, crypto returns are, are uncorrelated with any other asset. But I believe that's really just because you know the influence – that these macro, you know, financial events and, and, and flows have on the crypto market is so strong and so pronounced because the market was so small, right? Crypto, I think, is like an emerging digital emerging market economy. It's been until now a very small digital emerging market economy, right? And if you think about it, you know, integrating with the broader world, right? It's still susceptible to what happens, the shocks, the, the interest rates, the currency environments, the, the equity market environments that happen globally. And, you know, because it was small before, right, if, if you kind of, you know, you kind of had just a little blip in some of the outside um, markets, it was enough to crash crypto. Or, you know, if you had, you know, really accommodative policy in the outside markets, it was enough to make crypto go parabolic. So it's things that we've seen historically, right, that, you know, have um, kind of really influenced the crypto market cycle, you know, have been monetary policy, right, um, central bank liquidity uh, across the globe. And, you know, as, as banks are, you know, with, with all risk assets, right? We don't think this is just unique to crypto. With all risk assets, stocks, you know, things that are store value assets, real estate, you know, accommodative central bank policy is, is, is bullish for crypto. Uh, we've seen that. 
you know, we've also seen, you know, as interest rates fall, other riskier assets, people are looking for return, things like, you know, high yield bonds or stocks become more attractive. Crypto as well, right? It's it's way out on the on the risk spectrum for many folks. And um, when people are chasing returns, you know, a little bit of that capital just seeping from from the debt market can have a big impact on crypto prices, right? Just given the, the size of crypto, it's it's only now a trillion, right? You know, uh, global real estate's like 200 trillion, you know, global bonds are like 85 trillion, 90 trillion, right? That's non, non-government. Global stocks, I mean, you're like 100 trillion. So, I mean, just a few just a few drops of liquidity from these larger asset classes, right? They can have big influence in the crypto market. And, and we, think, we think crypto is really priced, gets priced a lot like tech stocks um, in emerging market, currencies as well, right? So as emerging market capital flows are strong, I mean, dollar weekends, you know, it's just like capital flowing to this new digital emerging market with, you know, a lot of technology, you know, business fundamental trends behind it, right? And I think that's kind of the key. That's kind of the longer term, you know, non-cyclical picture is the tech disruption that I think is the one you really can buy into across, across the cycles. And so all of those things that you just described, those contribute to the macro forces that you uh, alluded to in the beginning, right? Yeah, that's right. And those, I think those are kind of the, some of the macro drivers. I mean, but I, and I think, you know, I think kind of more bottoms up, right? If you think about just supply and demand too, I think, you know, user growth is really important for that because users kind of onboard their friends. They tell more people, they get more people to kind of, you know, invest in the economy, to to work in the economy, to start businesses in the crypto economy, create more crypto economy uh, productivity, right? So that's, that's valuable stuff. That's kind of the long run stuff, right? Um, that, that capital investment is, is valuable. And those, those are things that we think about for it. As we see this industry get more and more regulated, how do you see this increased regulation affecting these crypto cycles? Well, I think Bitcoin's pretty, pretty, pretty regulated to, to kind of full extent. I mean, not fullest extent, but it's pretty regulated nowadays. I think the market's pretty healthy, to be honest. I mean, you know, most countries in the world, you can you can buy crypto and buy Bitcoin, uh, at least most major economies. You know, I think that there's a lot, especially in the U.S., a lot of oversight of exchanges. I think we have a good handle on kind of markets not being manipulated, prices not being pumped and dumped. I, you know, as much, much, much better than, you know, possible other earlier cycles where there's less kind of regulatory oversight, right? And, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen on the offshore exchanges. You don't know what happens, you know, in many of these global markets. You know, I think as regulation comes for crypto, I think it's healthier for capital investment, actually. Uh, people are talking about the hosted wallet thing with, you know, the Coinbase and the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin being very bad. And I think it'd be an expense to the exchanges. And I think, it, you know, could dampen innovation potentially. But, but I think the other thing it would do, and, the, and when that came out, I actually thought it was bullish, was because um, I think it would actually be good for institutional capital flows and um, investors being willing to feel that there's a lower risk premium to investing in the asset class. And, and lower risk premium means you, know, you can buy at higher prices. Something else I was thinking about that I'd love to get your take on is crypto index funds. What what are your views on that? Like, um, for instance, to make it easier for people to buy Bitcoin in, the, in their IRA or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, actually, so one of our clients is actually Bitwise. And Bitwise, for those who don't know, is um, they're very similar to, to the Grayscale um, GBTC and ETH products, but they have an, an index, which is the Bitwise 10 crypto index. And we did a report on them. And they were the first crypto index fund uh, that gave at, exposure to, you know, the top 10 assets, right? In a, in a you know, index methodical way, rebalances monthly. Um, and I think that's been a good product uh, for folks. 
uh, and our clients. You know, I think I think these products are actually the, really the way most people gain their initial exposure to the space, whether it's buying GBTC or EHE or, or Bitwise or um, any of the other products that they kind of have out there. I think I think that those products are are, are, are nice because folks who just want exposure, they don't have to deal with custody, you know, worrying about losing their keys, right? They don't have to, uh, you know, worry about getting hacked. They don't have to worry about creating an account at a new exchange where they, you know, a crypto exchange where maybe they, maybe they, they haven't done that before. They already have their brokerage account and they have their IRA and they can just, you know, kind of click their traditional buttons. You know, there's trade-offs to them though. Of course, there's, there's some fees involved, you know, let's call it two to 3% for some of these products. Really the biggest one is you have to worry about the NAV premiums. And what that means is for folks who kind of don't uh, understand kind of the the fundamental financial wrapper mechanics of, of some of these products, it's these things aren't exactly at least in the U.S. They're not they're not ETFs in Canada. There's what there's true you know I think a three true ETFs approved recently. You know the difference between these ETFs in Canada and the ones you think about traditionally in the stock market and the ones that are really ex- just just exchange traded products in the U.S. These crypto ones that aren't ETFs is these things are trusts, which just own the underlying asset, and they issue shares of, of the trust, right? So it's a company who does one thing, it owns the underlying asset and it sells shares. But the shares can trade at a different price from the underlying asset's value. So you could own $10 of Bitcoin and the shares could trade at $20, or they could trade at nine, right? So premium or discount by supply and demand on the market, right? That premium or discount is the thing people need to understand with um, investing in these products. You know, because like we've seen recently with um, the recent sell-off, you know, from 58000 to, uh, you know, where we went with like forty-four, and, and also following the Canadian ETF approval, and this is a couple of reasons why, the, the GBTC and the ETH, ETHE premiums have actually gone negative. Where before, you know, they've been as high as 200%, 2,000% for ETHE. You know, if you had bought that, even if Ethereum had done well and the premium had fallen so far, you, you've done very bad. But, but you know, at these about flat levels, it's a much better place to buy definitely than uh, the higher levels. But but understanding those mechanics is very important. Yeah. And for people who may not know, when you say negative premium, you actually mean that that company may have $100 in Ethereum, but the share price is only selling for 98 Yeah. And then the other way, positive premium, you're saying it was share price is selling for 200 but they actually only had $100 in crypto sitting in the bank. Yeah, so that is something to be wary of. Something you mentioned earlier I want to get back on was you actually said that you thought there was a lot of opportunity or there was at least a reasonable amount of opportunity around uh, taxes and compliance. So what are you seeing on the you know taxes, accounting, treasury side, like for crypto, you know, Tesla put, you know, $1.5 billion of Bitcoin in their balance sheet. Like how do they treat this? When you were mentioning that earlier, what, what are the opportunities you're seeing there? Keeping track of crypto is very hard. In the U.S., at least, it's uh, it's a capital gain or loss every time you um, you trade the asset. So you know you go to Yield Farm, you go to you go to change trade on exchange, right? You go to a stable coin. It's a pain. <laughs> it's, it's a lot, and, and then you got to track it, right? And then you have all these wallets, right. right? And I don't think anyone's really figured it out from um, a consumer friendly standpoint yet, like how to make it easy for consumers to use crypto in that standpoint yet with the IRS asking questions on everyone's tax returns. I think people, you know, are probably trying to do their best. 
I'd imagine they'd probably have some imperfect documentation if they went to check. And so do you see it more as a consumer opportunity or more as a corporate opportunity? I was actually kind of curious which way you thought. I think, it was I, think it's a, I think it's a business opportunity. We saw just yesterday, actually, some Utah tax startup get a, get a hundred million series A round, you know, to try to solve these problems. We'll see, right? Can they do it? Will someone else be able to do it in a scale that's with some technology that's, that's, that's efficient and does it. But I think that, that that'll be one thing that, that that'll have to get figured out, and it's a big opportunity for for some the business that will that does do it over the next three years. One other thing, I actually felt bad because we were, I felt like I cut you off a little bit earlier talking about uh, GDPR and Web three. <laughs> so I just wanted to go back to that and be like revisiting the Web three thesis earlier. I felt like you maybe had a little bit more there to say. So is there anything else about you know the Web three? Uh, roll out, like how, how you look at that, that you would want to let people know that you think maybe they're missing in this space? Yeah. I mean, don't, don't feel bad. You didn't cut me off. There's so many th- great things we can talk about on this podcast. We as consumers of products, tech products of crypto users, right? We can decide, you know, kind of what is the way we kind of want to live, you know, our internet lives. And I think there's an opportunity right now with, with, with everything being rebuilt in crypto to, to get involved, think about how we want to reshape that dynamic, right? And I think it's just a broader question in society that folks should talk about and think about and participate in. This one I just like to ask because I get this pushback from people in my network who are not quite ready to accept cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or anything. And I just want to ask, because you had this pretty boldly in your presentation, it's like, are they going to ban Bitcoin? <laughs> is, it, is, is this actually going to happen? Uh, and I already know your answer on this, but I'd like to hear if you're talking to one of those people out there who says they're just going to ban it, would love to hear uh, your response to that. That was actually a quote from Brian Brooks, who was the former um, uh, controller of the currency and he was actually at Coinbase before that. Yeah, he, he just said they're not, no one's going to ban Bitcoin. It's a technology, right? Like it's it's a useful thing. I think it's recognized in the U.S. and embraced of innovation. That's technology. You wouldn't ban a new tech stock. You wouldn't ban a new, you know, company doing things, right? Just because it's a decentralized network, it's not going to get banned, right? And you can, particularly in the U.S., right? I think it's already being embraced as innovation. It, and it'd also be too politically negative to ban crypto, I think, at this point in the U.S., right? You have lobbyists in, in Washington and things like Coin Center, you have at least, you know, 10, 11, you know, 12% of, I think, the U.S. households own crypto, right? Your constituency doesn't necessarily want to get rid of it. I think I think nowadays, especially, there's a lot of people in, in powerful positions, powerful investors, people who, you know, probably donate to many political campaigns, right? Especially on Wall Street now these days. BlackRock's trading, you know, Bitcoin futures. You know, Goldman's got a trading desk, right? You know, I'm not saying these are their biggest financial incentives yet. These are very small parts of their business, right? But even these portfolio managers, the big funds who own crypto, it's it's here to stay. And you don't, you don't want to ban it because it's 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 a new it's a new wave of the internet. It's a new way of doing internet technology. It, it would just be counterproductive to innovation. And I think regulators recognize that. It's playing within you know traditional rules, right? And it's not you know you have what point zero three four percent. I think it was chain analysis said that was illicit transactions on the Bitcoin network, right? So is that is that something worth banning? You know, I think it's like 3.4% or something, maybe more in the traditional banking system. So probably not, right? Especially if it takes the innovation out, right? You don't want to throw the baby with the, out with the bathwater. 
All right. Well, David, in this next segment, we call this Explain Your Tweet. This is where I go through your Twitter and dig up some tweets that I found to be interesting or cryptic or funny and give you a chance to explain them. Since we're running low on time, I'm just going to pull out one tweet real quick and give you a chance to talk about that. So one that I found, this one is from... February 12th, pretty recently you tweeted, most important thing in crypto is understanding the cycle, not the individual coins. What you're saying here, obviously we talked about crypto cycles already and why that's important, but is what you're saying that it doesn't really matter if you invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum or Polkadot or Dogecoin, none of that matters. It's more about understanding the cycle or tell people more what you meant by that tweet. Yeah, I forget which famous investor it was, but they said the most important decision you can make is to be in and out of the market and buy how much. And it might've actually been Howard Marks. Um, and I think that that's true in crypto, right? You wanna be in or out of the market, right? And by how much. The market as a whole kind of performs generally together, right? And especially if you own kind of a broader basket of crypto, prices are pretty correlated, right? Every, as things are going up and you're, 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 you're investing in the cycle, right? Obviously things get periods of, of crazy outperformance at different stages, right? Um, some of it's shorter lived, some of it's longer lasting. You can find some of the better assets, but, but broadly speaking, right? If you had just bought Bitcoin or you just bought Ethereum or you just kind of bought any of kind of the, you know, any mini mix of the, the top assets over the last few years, right? Um, you've done very well. You didn't really care. You've outperformed everything else in the traditional market sense that you could have you could have done. And if you had a lot of exposure to that, meaning it was a large portion of your portfolio, right? It was three, five, ten percent, right? You're relatively outperforming, you know, kind of the macro asset classes. So so I think that that's really the key. You know, and within that you can be you can be smarter and you can get alpha by finding the right altcoins at the right times and stuff. But but I think for for newer crypto investors, it's just understanding when do you want to be in and trying to avoid those kind of market peaks and drawdowns um, and trying to have have, the, have enough exposure at the bottoms in the right times. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, David. This was a great conversation. I, I personally learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will learn a lot from listening to this as well. Thanks so much for being here. Before you go, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally and also where they can learn more about Fundstrat and how can they get connected with Fundstrat if you know that's the sort of service that they're looking for. Sure. So you can find uh, me on Twitter at David underscore Gride, G-R-I-D. And um, you can find, um, you know, Fundstrat or for institutional clients, uh, Fundstrat.com. Uh, for retail clients, FSinsights.com. And you could also follow Tom Lee. I'd recommend him as well, you know, at Fundstrat on Twitter. Uh, he's a great resource as well. So. Awesome. We will include all that in the show notes so it's easy for you to click through. So thanks so much, David. This was great. Thanks, Matt, for co-hosting as always. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you and thanks again for listening.